If I had to choose one country as my favorite to visit in Europe, I'd have to pick Italy. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Even though living fortissimo can include massive crowds of tourists from all over the world, the locals know there's also an upside to Italy's growth in tourism. So it's made places more crowded, but it's also businesses have bloomed because of that. We have more opportunity of places to go, where to stay, where to eat. Guides from Italy take your calls to coach you with your travel plans and to prime you for dealing with some of those little cultural differences. They have perfected the art of practice indifference. Plus, journalist Martin Fletcher tells us how much Israel has changed as his home base over the years. Tel Aviv has changed dramatically, become such a cosmopolitan, interesting, large town. Find out what's happening in Italy this year and how to get the most out of a visit to Israel. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. He's certainly earned his retirement after many years and accolades as a news correspondent to many of the world's hotspots. Martin Fletcher is back with us today on Travel with Rick Steves to share his view of his home base, Israel, as a travel destination. I consider the test of a good traveler is how they respond to Italy. There's so much to enjoy in Italy, it's hard to get enough of it. But the differences that can charm you one minute might frustrate you the next. I've learned by experience that Italy can force us to reassess our attitudes and expectations. We're joined now by American-born tour guides Anne Long and Nina Bernardo to look at what's happening this year in Italy. Anne has been living on the Amalfi Coast near Sorrento for decades, and Nina has made Rome her home base for many years as well. Since they take many American visitors around Italy each year, they'll take your calls in a bit at 877-333-7425 to help you prepare to enjoy Italy this year. Let's start by looking at some of the issues that might catch American visitors off guard when they're in Italy. Nina, what should they be aware of? I think a lot of things Americans are frustrated by. Uh, one of the big things is that they're used to service culture in the U.S., which is, um, you know, you go somewhere and the customer is always right and your needs are always attended to and everyone's always checking on you to make sure that you're okay. The Italians are not like that. They have... Um, perfected the art of practiced indifference. So, practiced indifference. Practiced indifference. They just look so cool, you know, behind yeah. the bar or, or waiting tables or, or whatever. It's not that they don't care. It's just that the service industry is a little bit different. So, so you a, just have a, to be a little more assertive with your needs. And as a tourist, you might think they're not very attentive to you, but they're not very attentive to anybody. So. Right. They're not singling you out for any reason. <laughs> they treat the Italians the same way. And it's a practical way of life. It's a cultural thing. And just don't take it personally. Yeah. And how about you? What would you advise an American going to Italy who wants to have the right attitude to enjoy it. Well, it's, a, it's the same way with, like, jet lag. You have to kind of work your way into it little by little before you leave America to go to Italy. You got to start dropping your habits. Mm. I have to have my three cups of coffee before I can get going in the morning. You know, I can only walk straight on nice sidewalks like I've been doing at home. It's cobblestone. It's up and down. Just, it's of, a whole different world. It's a whole different system. Sort of anticipate the difference and celebrate it. Don't compare it it's to what's not back home. It's not bad. It's different. It's, it's not bad. Well, it's not bad. It's different. Nina, talk about that in the sense of the problem that Rome's got with garbage all over the place now. Yeah, Rome is uh, having a few problems with uh, city infrastructure and public buses catching on fire and garbage piling up and all that. And these are eternal problems, not just in Rome, but in Italy and, you know, a combination of corruption and yeah. mismanagement of funds and things like that. But that doesn't have to, you know, take away from your experience at all. If you can look beyond, if that's all you focus on, that's all you focus on. But yeah. if you can look beyond that, 
then. So that, many beautiful things. That's critical. Same thing with strikes. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of strikes in Italy. I think it's a very important word to know when you travel in Italy. What's the word for strike? Sciopero. You should know Shopero. that word. Shopero. <laughs> <laughs> because you may see a sign Sciopero at the train station, and that tells you there's a strike. But, Anne, it doesn't mean they're going on strike for six weeks. These are kind of nuisance strikes, aren't and they? And sometimes they don't go on strike at all. They'll say, oh, yeah, the trains are on strike 24 hours. It starts at 9 o'clock. Huh? And you go at 9.05, and the trains are still going. And you go the next day. They decided to call it off last minute, but they disrupted the system. They, That's all they wanted to do. You know, they accomplished what they wanted <laughs> to do. A nuisance strike. Exactly. And even when it does go on strike, I find if it says it's going to be a strike to 9 o'clock tomorrow morning and you're flexible, well, head out before that, you right. know, or just right. anticipate that. But if all of a sudden you realize today the trains are, quote, on strike, I go down to the train station and I, I get on whatever train is going in the direction I want to go. I just work my way toward that destination. The high-speed trains usually go even with the Chopero because they, they definitely need to keep up, a, you know, they're going to other countries as well. So okay. the high-speed ones usually operate during strike periods. Okay. Nina, why are there so many strikes in Italy? I mean, what would they be about? Well, it's always about contract negotiations, and often contracts need to be renegotiated on a fairly regular basis, and so they're trying to make sure that their their benefits are taken care of. And so the only way to get attention sometimes is to have a strike or make a disruption. Oftentimes, though, as Anne was saying, the disruption is more for the locals, so it's mm-hmm. the regional trains that are being affected. So, yeah. you know, most tourists who are coming to Italy are using the high-speed train, so... So tourists really generally been... can skirt around it. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, there, there's alternatives, too. You can yeah. uh, you can rent a car. You can hop on a bus. Mm-hmm. I find in a lot of ways the buses are underrated in Italy. I mean, you can go to the bus station, and, and it's actually quite a nice alternative. We're getting many different companies now in that are European companies that are doing from cities to cities. That is a big trend. I noticed in, in Germany first, it would go from one train station to another major train station, a three- or four-hour drive, and they would do it for half the price of a train ticket, right. leaving from the station to the station just as fast. Mm-hmm. So that's, you'll see that in Italy also. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with two American expats who have lived in uh, Italy for decades. For decades also, they have taken Americans around as tour guides. And you moved to Sorrento, uh, near Sorrento, south of Naples, what, 40 years ago? 40 years. Uh, why did you go there and then why did you stay? Well, I was trying to decide with my major at university, and I couldn't decide. So I said, six months off, I'll go and think it out under the sunshine of Sorrento and ended up never going back. My university continued on in normal life and in southern Italy. Nice. And after 40 years, do you feel part of the community? I do. I do feel like part of the community, but I'm always the foreigner. You don't look very Italian. No, (laughs) no, I don't sound Italian. I don't look Italian. But you're married to an Italian. I married an Italian. I raised a child, and I pay the uh, the taxes, and I shop at the (laughs) stores, so they can't ignore me. (laughs) And Nina, you've lived in Italy enough to know about the bureaucracy that somebody has to deal with. As a resident of Italy... Compared to what we live in the United States. Oh, it's so complicated. I try to live on the margins of society, which you yeah. can do a little bit if you're an expat. But, you know, if I have to go to the post office, I usually break out into a rash before <laughs> I have to go because it could take you hours to do anything. And in Italy, it's if you have one question and you ask five people, you get five different answers. So it's a little bit complicated, difficult to navigate. In Italy, it's always if you know someone who can smooth your way in, mm-hmm. it's helpful. So Italians tend to rely on the persona di fiducia, right, the trustworthy person who can help you navigate a So system. you need to have a, a crony, really. You need to have a crony. And if you get stuck in a bureaucratic situation where it's a gray area and uh, a bureaucrat doesn't want to risk making the wrong decision, he'll say something. He'll refer to the responsible one, the person above him, who might be on vacation or is likely on vacation because he's up above, and uh, then he don't get anywhere. Right, and they embrace this phrase, non dipende da me, it's not my job, it's not my responsibility, so can't help you, sorry, come back another day. That's really common and incredibly frustrating. 
much as I love Italy, it kind of breaks my heart about their bureaucracy. It just, they, they could well, you want to visit so Italy. More. I don't necessarily know that you want to live there. You have to have a special <laughs> temperament to live there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. We're talking about Italy with Anne Long and Nina Bernardo. Bob's calling from Chiricasta in Massachusetts. Bob, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick. I have a question about Venice. I've been reading that they're thinking about charging an admission fee or an admission tax to go into Venice. And I'm wondering, is that just for cruise ships? Or are they going to put turnstiles in the train station and Piazza hmm. Roma? Or, I mean, I know a couple of years ago they started charging even admission into the Milan Cathedral, which I thought was strange, too. Um, do you know much about this? Well, it's one thing to charge admission for a cathedral, which I can understand, but to charge admission for a whole city to um, moderate the congestion coming in and to raise a little money, that's pretty radical. And uh, what is with that, Anne? Well, there's, of course, always discussions. It's going to be quite a long discussion period. But what they're saying right now is that the people that are staying in hotels in Venice are already paying a tourist tax. And that, of course, is money going towards picking up garbage and police control and things like that. But people that are just day trippers are not paying anything, and they're leaving as much garbage around as anybody else. So they want to try to figure out a way to charge day trippers, which would be cruise ship people, but it would also be people that are just traveling on their own, coming okay. in, and they would have to pay a tax that could be anywhere from €2.50 to €10 Euros per person, and that would be collected. They're thinking maybe it can be put on to their train ticket, uh-huh. and then the train uh, people would pay Venice. Any train ticket going to Venice. Yes, or could the cruise ship people themselves would collect the money and pay Venice. So it's going to be a mess and it's not going to be organized well, and just batten down the hatches, here we go for the ride. <laughs> here we go for the ride. And they'll talk about it for 10 years yes. before anything will ever happen, I would and think. As, as soon as Venice gets on board, everybody else will follow. All oh, the other goodness. cities will jump well, on. Well, in Venice, in a sense, I'm already paying a visitor tax when I come, because the only way to get around is by the floating buses, the Vaporetto. And I think a local person pays probably less than a quarter of what I pay as a tourist. So it'll cost me, what, $8 to ride a Vaporetto ride. That's a ridiculous sum of money to ride. It's like a bus ticket for a one-way bus ticket for $8. In a sense, I'm paying a $5 fee to be a tourist in Venice. There's been a lot of controversy about this as well because people are saying, well, if you have an admission to the entire city, you've already admitted it's a Disneyland at yeah. this point, and so you've taken away. Yeah. It would be a sad thing because there is an actual community. There's 60,000 people right. there. It's actually ticking down. There's a pharmacy right on the uh, Campo San Bartolomeo that has a a digital readout in its window saying what the population is today of Venice. And I don't know how accurate it is, but it's been going steadily down because people are finding, young people are finding that, hey, Venice is great if you're a tourist with a camera who wants to take a ride on a gondola. But if you're trying to live there and raise your kids there, and so and there's certain realities that do make it Really difficult to deal with, yeah. So it's an interesting dynamic. But uh, Bob, are you heading to Venice? Yeah, I'll be going over next September. It is it is one of my favorite places to go. I've been I've been uh, going there for many, many, many years, and uh, I was sort of shocked when I saw that this time. They're going to talk about it for a long time. Frankly, I'd ignore it, and uh, I would just think about how can you enjoy Venice with a little less um, frustration because of the crowds. What's your trick, Bob, when you're in Venice to uh, enjoy the city while not getting, uh, you know, just overwhelmed by the crowds? I like Venice on a rainy day, you know, walking around the streets when, and the cobblestones when they're wet is just is, is, is amazing. Hmm. If you can time it so you arrive on a Vaporetto at St. Mark's Square just as the sun is setting, mm. it is magical. It is, uh, mm. It's an amazing thing to see. Mm. And then and whenever I'm with someone who's never been there before, it's, it's one of those jaw-droppers if you can time it right. 
Oh, yeah. A couple thoughts in that regard. Uh, if you go up to the Campanile in the winter on a crisp blue day, the Alps, it looks like they're just rising right out of Venice. And it's just like, you just can't believe that crispy winter wonder of looking at the view from the top of the Campanile, the bell tower, that brick tower right uh, on the main square. Also, last time I was in uh, Venice, I happened to be in a little hotel away from the rest of my crew. And every morning at 7.30, I got up and I walked across the town at 7.30. It was gorgeous. Yeah. Be out early, and, and it's just so untouristy, and then be out late. The it's fish like, markets early in the morning. Perfect. Great, and, um, great idea. And if you walk down Lissa de Spagna all the way straight till it comes around to the Rialto, you get out of the, out of the tourist area completely, and um, that's kind of an interesting place to walk. I, I enjoy it. So important. Thanks, Bob, for your call. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, guys. Happy travels. You're welcome. Dentro la tasca di un qualunque mattino Dentro la tasca ti porterei Col fazzoletto di seta e profumo, col fazzoletto ti coprirei. Dentro la tasca di un qualunque mattino, dentro la tasca ti nasconderei. E con la mano che non veda nessuno, e con la mano ti saluterei. E con la mano ma che non veda nessuno, con questa mano. Our guides to Italy are Nina Bernardo and Anne Long, and they're taking your calls at 877-333-RICK about visiting Italy this year. There's lots more on Italy in just a minute. And later in the hour, we visit Israel. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Man Turaj hastam va ba Rick Steves safar mikonam. I'm Turaj. This is uh, Farsi for I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Man Turaj hastam va ba Rick Steves safar mikonam. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Anne Long and Nina Bernardo, and we're talking about what's new in Italy. Hey, Nina, I think 500 years ago, a guy named Leonardo died. What are they doing in Italy now? He did. So they're going to have a couple of really big exhibitions, one in Milan that's going to be on for a few months, and Rome is planning one as well at a place called the Scuderia del Quirinale, which is a a venue in Rome Mm -hmm. that puts on really important exhibits. So I think if you just Google Leonardo Milan or Leonardo Rome, Okay, so those would get, be the places. Um, yeah, those would be the things to see if you're in either of those cities, absolutely. And, of course, uh, Leonardo spent his most creative years, I think, in Milan. In Milan, so, yeah. So uh, uh, there's but, a lot of great Leonardo there. Right, which is why Milan will have an amazing exhibit, but Rome didn't want to be left out. They there had is, to put there, something there on. There is that sort of competition between Rome and Milan, isn't there? Right. You live in Rome. What do Romans think of Milanese? Well, I can't say on the radio, but... <laughs> Rome just doesn't want to be outdone at all. Romans know what people think about their city, and they know that people think that Milan runs better and it functions better and, you know, it's easier to get around and all that. And so I just think that, not that they suffer from an inferiority complex, because they don't, absolutely. But they're competitive. But they are competitive. And they say for every church in Rome, there's a bank in Milan. Probably. So the the industrial, the financial center, a lot of the hard-hitting But the Romans will tell you that the Milanese don't know how to enjoy life, so... Sure, so that's an interesting north-south divide, like a lot of countries have. In the north of Italy, you've got that German flavor, and and in, in Milan, I feel like people are power dressing. They, right. You know, you go out to a little deli and they'll power wrap your your prosciutto. I mean, everything right. is and just And they like, walk with oh. a purpose. They've got a place to go and they have yeah. to be there on time. And the Romans stroll to the places they need to get to. And oh, they don't have a problem stopping for a coffee on the way, <laughs> you know, to chat with friends. So, and you're not in this, Bray, because you live in uh, Napoli area. It's even what? worse. They, even, they, they hate both of them. They hate <laughs> Rome and Milan. So that's the, the problem with them. 
Well, uh, uh, you know, because that isn't interesting. Italy got united around 1870, and in, before then, Naples was one of the richest and, and leading cities of the Italian culture. Exactly. Suddenly, Italy is unified, and Naples is sort of um, left out in the dark. They lost all. They were the richest nation. They had coffers absolutely full. And when they unified, all the money went up to the north because the first king went up to Torino. He was a base there and took the money up there. So that's why all the immigrants to America were from Sicily and Naples. Because they had nothing to do. They had no way to support themselves. Their money was gone. Damn those northerners. I tell you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are talking with Anne Long and Nina Bernardo, and we're talking about what's going on in Italy. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Mary's given us a ring from Wilmington, North Carolina. Mary, are you traveling to Italy in the near future? Yes, we are. We're really excited. My family, we have two daughters. They're 12-year-old twins, and we're going to the, I think, the big three, sort of Rome, Florence, and Venice. Ah, 12-year-old twins, Venice, Florence, and Rome. And that is such an easy tour to do on your own. You know, you just fly into one city and fly out of the other. Fly in, I would fly into Venice and let Rome be the finale, and you get an open-jaw ticket into Venice, out of Rome. You get two three-hour train rides, Venice to Florence and Florence to Rome. I bet they're shorter now because the trains get faster and the distance stays the same. You get three reservations for your hotels, and, uh, you know, you can. there's plenty of great hotels depending on your budget and your style. And then you've defined your situation. you got three days in each city. you got an easy train connection. And then you got to remember there's a lot of crowds, and everybody wants to go to the same places. So book in advance the uh, high-profile places you want to see. If you're going to go to the Vatican Museum, if you're going to go to the Uffizi Gallery, if you want to see David, especially with two 12-year-old kids, You don't want to be standing in line for hours. You can book in advance, and that is really important. What questions are you struggling with to put an itinerary together for your kids? Well, actually, we're lucky because we're trying to take as much time as we can, maybe because of what you were talking about before, having to take time for things that might come up. So we're going to have about six days in each city. Mm, So we'll be able to see most of the big things with reservations, I hope. But we also want to do something different or fun, like activities or classes or bike tours. I wondered if if you guys had any ideas. That's a great question. Let's just kind of brainstorm, Nina. And then you're going to Italy, Venice, Florence, and Rome. you got kids. What are some hands-on activities that will get the kids enthusiastic about the daily plan? In Venice, definitely I would recommend either mask-making or visiting a gondola workshop. So, so the mask making is serious. Yeah, you can go. There are several uh, venues where you can do it, and mm-hmm. you're making, creating, and painting your own mask. The gondola workshop, I think, it would be super cool for kids to see how they've been making gondola. I mean, there are only mm. a few places that make it the way they've been making it for centuries. And there is an actual uh, program where you can learn to. Uh, you can learn to row, is right. Gondola. Yeah, it's a right. one It's called or. Row Venice. Right. Row Venice. Yeah, and you, you can, can do take... a, a lesson on the lagoon, and that's really really fun. You can take kayak excursions in the outskirts right. of Venice. And any other thoughts? Um, I remember reading that they have gladiator school in Rome that you can learn how to be gladiator school wow I'm not sure about dress uh, but uh, definitely wielding weapons sounds like fun we who are about to die salute you salute you you. that's That's right right. I've heard that's really super fun really release some energy and then also there's some wonderful bike rides in Rome out by the Appian Way and so on right and also Florence to get out of the city I mean Florence Mm -hmm. is relatively flat but once you get out you can get to the outskirts and there'd be biking there one of the most memorable things I've done in Florence, it's not cheap, but it was really a cool experience, is making a fresco. And in the Ultra Arno, there's just workshops, and uh, you can actually learn how to make a fresco. And the kids, kids of any age, can actually make a, a pretty nice fresco. And you go out of there with a, like a one-foot square fresco with the same technique that Michelangelo and Raphael would have used. 
and you go home with a souvenir that you did yourself. Wow, that sounds fantastic. There are so many fun things for kids to do in those cities. Cooking classes, too. Oh, yeah, definitely a cooking Cooking class. Cooking class. They can make tiramisu ice cream. They can make their own pasta. Do pizza making, all kinds of things. So it's just a matter of, as a parent, doing your studying in advance. I will remind you there's a lot of really good walking tour companies in all of these cities. And with a family of four, it's quite economic to hire your own private guide. You know, have a picnic dinner. You'll save enough money to have half a day of a private guide the next day. That way they can tailor it to your kids' interests. And it's on foot, and it's a delightful way to get your kids excited about all that urban fun. Oh, that's great. All great ideas. Thanks for your call. Have fun. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Italy with Anne Long and Nina Bernardo. And Kate is calling us from Willoughby in Ohio. Hey, Kate, are you heading over to Italy? Hi, I am Rick. This is, I, I think, my sixth or seventh trip because I'm an absolute nut about Italy, and now I like going to the smaller places, but this will be my first trip to the Apulia area, and we have an Airbnb, uh, a few friends and I, about halfway between Bari and Brindisi, and I'm just wondering what suggestions you might have for that area. Now, is this Puglia or Apulia? So Puglia in Italian and Apulia we say in English. Ah, so, okay, because yeah. I've always same seen Puglia. Same heel of the boot, yeah. It's yeah. the heel of the boot. Right. And that's I, just straight across from where you live? Right, it's straight across from me. And uh, if you look at a map of Italy, there's a little spur on the back of the boot of Italy, and that is the Gargano Peninsula. Mm. And that is full of small little resort areas, beaches, and really undiscovered. I mean, they're very busy July and August, but the rest of the year, beautiful, clean sea, and nobody there. Good food, relatively cheap accommodations around Because you do there. have to be careful when you're traveling in Italy, when you go to a beach resort, if it is a disco kind of uh, clubbing beach right. resort. Uh, what is the big one south of near Rimini, Pisa? Up in Rimini, 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 Rimini. Rimini. They're just the, like... The cheesy ones with the discotecas are usually up north. Up north. We so keep it simpler down south. Down in the right. south. That's good. Nina, any other ideas for yeah, Puglia? Yeah, some of the greatest cave complexes uh, in Italy are in Puglia. So the Grotta di Castellana would be really, I think, an easy drive for you from where you're staying. And also the Castel del Monte, which is not far from the caves. And that's um, Frederick II. He's, I have a crush on him. Um, you have a crush on Frederick, I have a Frederick II. I know. What isn't is that, it about isn't him? That a weird, so isn't that a weird crush? He was a visionary. But he uh, built this very enigmatic uh, <laughs> Who was castle. He in, in, <laughs> so he was uh, half German, half Norman. And he was uh, basically Holy Roman Emperor and King of Sicily and the south of Italy. So okay. he was a big thorn in the side of the papacy in the early 1200s. Right there, you're talking about Holy Roman Empire, the papacy, the Normans. Italy was only Italy uh, in the late yesterday, 1800s, right. yesterday, historically yeah. speaking. Right. And when you have a sense of what was that fascinating layer cake of civilizations and squabbles, what do they say? In, in Sicily, there's been 17 different dominations, dominations right. or something. So yeah. 17 different uh, civilizations that have swept in, take over the place, leave their cuisine, leave their dialect, leave their values, and then be tossed out by the next civilization. And it turns out to be just a fascinating experience for travelers. And the more you understand that when you travel there, the more you'll get Right. It, it just makes your experience so much richer if you have a little bit of a sense of all those different layers. And, of course, Mateta isn't that far. It's not Puglia. But Matera is a wonderful city to go visit. And what is iconic about Matera? The caves. Uh, the caves. It's been continuously inhabited for 7,000 years. What's the city uh, that Mel Gibson was in during That's the right. That's the where they did the Matera. passion. Yes, so Matera is where they gr- filmed. Uh, almost biblical kind of uh, exactly. landscape. It feels like you're in the Middle East rather than if yeah. you're right. when you go there. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And then there's the famous uh, Beehive Yes, you're in Matera is capital, European capital of culture, culture, so there'll be tons of events going on. From where you're staying in Puglia, it would be an easy probably day trip for you. Right. Hey, thanks, Kate. Have a good time. 
Italy is on our radar right now on Travel with Rick Steves as Italy-based tour guides Nina Bernardo and Anne Long help us make the most out of our vacation plans for Italy this year. And Steve's calling from Tigard in Oregon. Steve, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome, Rick. Nice to talk to you. Yeah. Have you been uh, uh, dreaming about Italy? Oh, I dream about Italy all the time. My wife and I have been there together three times now. Uh, In 1995, my wife and I visited the Cinque Terre at your suggestion, and it truly was a back door. Twenty years later, we went to Vanata, and it seemed more like Disneyland. It was so overwhelmed. Yep. I plead guilty. And... uh, it is popular. It's certainly discovered now, isn't it? It certainly has been. So um, are there times of year when you can visit there that are not so crowded, or what similar things might you suggest? Well, you know, there's and times of years when you can go to the... We're talking about the most beautiful stretch of the Mediterranean coastline anywhere in Europe, as far as I'm concerned, the Italian Riviera, the Cinque Terre, five little, almost traffic-free towns nestled in the very, very rugged part. Only in modern times was the train allowing it to connect with the rest of the Italian world. When I first went there, completely untouched, undiscovered, rugged, rustic, and poor. Now it's well-developed, it's very popular, and it's quite affluent. And you can go there in the off-season, and it's very quiet, it's very sleepy, but everything's shut down. All the good restaurants take a break. All the bad restaurants stay open because they need to make more money, and the good restaurants are closed down. I would go in the summer, but I would avoid weekends. I would go in shoulder season, spring or fall. And I would just avoid weekends because, remember, a lot of crowds there, but in the weekends it is uh, exacerbated by people from Genoa coming in because it's the beach town getaway for Genovese. And that, combined with the fact that cruise ships are now docking in La Spezia instead of Livorno, they dock there to go to Florence, but from La Spezia, where they now are docking, it's much closer to the Cinque Terre. So half of the cruise crowds... I was just on a cruise ship that docked in, in La Spezia, and I had noticed there was as many excursion buses going to the Cinque Terre as to Florence, and that inundates that little region. So if you hit it on a weekend when the Genovese there, or if you hit it when there's a perfect storm of cruise ships in at the big city nearby La Spezia, you just have to anticipate huge crowds. Anne or Nina, do you have any advice for crowds in the Cinque Terre? Well, if you're staying overnight, probably not stay there, but stay at one of the towns north of the Cinque Terre. Then you have easy access into the towns, but then you don't have to deal with the crowds all the time, and you can choose when to go in. You know, the middle of the mm-hmm. day when the cruise shippers are there is the busiest time. Right. You go early in the morning, later in the evening, and then it you seems know, much more backdoor. Almost any time you're dealing with cruise ship crowds, remember, they're there between 10 o'clock and 5 o'clock, and that's when it's miserable. I was in Dubrovnik. It's the same thing. Dubrovnik is hellish when there's a lot of cruise ships there from 10 till 5. But then when those cruise ships sail away, It's just you and that beautiful town. So in the case of the Cinque Terre, in the middle of the day, it could be packed. But if you're staying nearby, as Nina was mentioning, you can uh, enjoy the Cinque Terre and uh, you can remember that the trains run every hour and you go half an hour north and you find yourself a town. What towns are you thinking? I was thinking of Levanto. That's my favorite laid-back town to stay in. But north of there is Bonasola and there are a few Uh, others. You can stay in the Cinque Terre or you can train ride in. But when you get on that train, when you hit it during rush hour, it's actually frightening. There's so many people on the platform, and it's just chaos. And people can't get off the train. They can't get on the train. Sometimes part of the train is stopping outside of the train station, so you don't even have a platform, and you have to jump off onto the stones. It can be a mess. They've got to work on that in Italy. Yeah. Sounds like quite an adventure. It's an adventure. You know, and Steve, one thing we just always got to remember, when we go to the famous places, 
they're no secret. There's these darn travel writers that are always talking about them, and uh, everybody knows about it, and uh, there's more people traveling than ever. That means it's more important than ever to venture beyond that, and uh, right. that would be the theme for 2019. I mean, there's lots. 90% of Italy never has any tourist crowds. It's you know? true. So you, many undiscovered places. You so. could go to Bolzano. You could go to Bergamo. You could go to uh, Napoli, and you don't have the tourist crowds, and you have that wonderful Italian culture. Right. And what's your tip for getting off the beaten path in Italy? Well, you always have to fly into major cities. But Mm -hmm. then once you're into the major cities, all you have to do is go to a tourist board and they'll tell you what a day trip out, where they have, what they have available. Local travel agencies Mm -hmm. that sell excursions can explain to you what's around that you can get away from the crowds and go find something. Also, you know, there's public access buses and trains to these places. But if you can name it, it's going to be crowded. There's a lot of towns that are just San Gimignano. Everybody knows it. Siena, everybody knows it. Uh, Florence, Michelangelo, everybody knows it. But you could go to a different town and it would have almost no crowds at all. Nina, any advice on, on... Yeah, even if you're going to the the big towns, it's not necessary to see, you know, the, the most iconic sites to get a sense yeah. of a place. I mean, you can go to Rome... Let's talk not about see, that in ...not Rome. see the Forum and not see the Colosseum, but you could learn about ancient Roman history by seeing Trajan's Market. It's got a beautiful museum. It's right across the street and nobody goes and there. And there's nobody there. What is the Pamphili... The Palazzo Doria Pamphili, which is a beautiful art museum. You hardly have anybody in there. It's got nobody there. It's got high-class, top-notch art. You don't have to go to the Vatican Museum to see top-notch art. And it's a five-minute walk from the Pantheon. Right. Cross over to Trastevere, and you take a right, and there's the Villa Farnesina. Villa Farnesina. And it's got... Doesn't it have some Raphael's in there? It has some Raphael's in there, too. And there's never a crowd. Right. Right. Where are the people? They're lining up to get into the Sistine Chapel. They're crushed into the Pantheon, you know. So there's lots of ways to get away from those crowds. Steve, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the advice. Bon viaggi. Rob's calling in from Petersfield in Manitoba. Hey, Rob, thanks for your call. Hey, how you doing? Actually, we've been to Italy a number of times, but we're taking our nephew who's in the university right now. He wants to see all the high sites and and that there. The last few times he went... We didn't buy any, like a Roma Pass or a Omnia Pass or anything like that. We just, we just kind of walked around and, and picked up little tours from single people that were standing outside the, these areas, like the Coliseum and that. Found those pretty good. Um, what would you recommend? Like, I don't know whether we should do the Roma. The only thing I don't like about the passes is that you have to use them in, in consecutive days, right? Right. Well, the good thing about a sightseeing pass is it lets you in without waiting to buy a ticket. And uh, various cities have various passes, but uh, they pay them for themselves in a couple of visits, and then you don't have to wait in line. You go straight to the front with your pass. Right. Yeah. Now, I have two guides with me here, and I'd love to hear what they've got to say about just grabbing one of those guides that stand in front of the Colosseum and want to take you in. I know it's easy to do, but I would absolutely avoid them at all costs. They're usually the lowest quality guided tours you can get. They're, um, I don't want to say, but yeah, they're a little bit of like a mafia association, and those... Those hawkers are out there getting, you know, 50 cents for every person they can bring to the tour. The guides are not paid very well, so they're not the highest quality guides, and they're just trying to get a number of people in there. I would avoid those. I would say if you want a guided visit, go with a high-quality guide, but, you know, you can do a little bit of research and find a good one. one And if you don't want the Roma Pass, you can still book individual entrances to tickets and avoid the line. So if you don't want to go on consecutive days, you can decide on the museums you want to visit and book an individual entrance. Okay. That might be a good way to, you know, do that and then maybe pick up a city pass just for the buses and metro and that, and then we can kick around and drop in on our own. That's exactly my hope for do-it-yourself travelers. Rob, thanks for your call. Okay, thanks a lot. Happy travels. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been looking ahead to what's new in Italy and how to travel smartly in this season, and we've been joined by Anne Long and Nina Bernardo. Anne and Nina, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of your adopted homeland. Grazie, Rick. Yes. Spero di vedervi in Italia. And what did you just say? I just said, hope to see you in Italy. And simply, piacere. My pleasure. My pleasure, too. Buon lavoro to both of you. Grazie. Grazie. Up next, journalist Martin Fletcher returns to travel with Rick Steves. Years ago, he rode about a 100-mile walk he took down the entire length of Israel's Mediterranean coast to report on what he found and the people he met. Martin updates us on Israel as a travel destination next on Travel with Rick Steves. Martin Fletcher has watched the state of Israel up close for more than three decades. He was NBC's bureau chief in Tel Aviv for many years, and now that he's retired from that post, he files occasional special reports for NBC and PBS. But mostly, he's writing novels, using his experience in the Middle East to paint a human portrait of family, love, and the cost of war. Martin Fletcher's newest novel is Promised Land, Martin joins us now to share his own perspectives on the state of Israel today and how he's seen the country change. Martin, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. You know, I'll never forget talking with you about your book, Walking Israel. And in that interview, you actually uh, related how you, you walked the entire Mediterranean coast of Israel from Lebanon's border to Gaza. If you did that walk today, so many years later, would that walk be any different or, or is this sort of timeless, that experience? I think it's pretty timeless. I mean, each city would be bigger, and Tel Aviv has has changed dramatically, become such a cosmopolitan, interesting, large town. But the coast itself remains pretty much the same. It's a wonderful walk. You've got so much history. I mean, you've got ancient sites, and you've got modern history. Uh, If you were to walk the coast today and point out a couple of must-see experiences, what would it be? Well, when I wrote the book, I remember saying that it was the most interesting 100 miles in the world. And it just has to be. When you think of what happened on that tiny coastline, which is only 110 miles long, by the way, from the border of Lebanon to Gaza, hmm. and you think about what happened there, the events of the Bible and, the, and Alexander the Great and Napoleon and the Israel experience, it's extraordinary. The must, let's see, off the beaten track, I loved uh, Hofdor, which is a beach a little bit north of Netanya, between Netanya and Haifa. Uh-huh. Just a beautiful, beautiful beach. And the, you know, the approach to Gaza is extraordinary because you you really feel you're leaving behind Israel and you're entering an, an area that you really don't know what's going to happen. Mind you, it's hard to get there because the army turns you back. Right. But it's the, the whole walk is fascinating. I was fascinated just by the mix of today's stress and challenges and history that goes all the way back to ancient times, crusader forts coming into Tel Aviv and realizing that city really wasn't there 150 years ago. There's a, just a couple of old streets that date from uh, early 20th century, but it's an amazing story of a town created in, in our own lifetime. How is traveling in the Holy Land these days? Uh, we, we tend to hear it in the news and we think, oh, everything's going to be very stressful and you know uncomfortable from a travel point of view. Do you recommend traveling in the Holy Land? I can't tell you, Rick, how many people phone me and say, is it safe to visit the Holy Land? Or rather, is it safe to visit Israel? And I always say it's safe until it isn't safe. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it's completely safe, and you could get unlucky. It depends on the period. You have to know when you're going and be aware of political developments. But overall, it's as safe as anywhere else. I remember once NBC News asked me to do a story on murders in Jerusalem, and there were 11 murders in the entire year. There's more than that in a month in many American cities. So it's safe unless there's you know, some real fighting going on. Then you've just got to be aware of that. 
So if you're thinking of traveling in Israel, I would think the more you know about what you're looking at, the history, both the contemporary history and, and its history through the centuries, the more you would get out of that. Beyond that, even though, there's just uh, wonderful cultural experiences. I'll never forget having a beautiful dinner right on the beach uh, up by Haifa. And we've got this sort of festival. It's almost like people want to love you by showering food on you, and they want to show off on how, <laughs> how prosperous they are by showering food on you. Uh, what would your favorite uh, eating experiences have been on that hike? It's like having a million Jewish mothers all trying to feed you at the same time, you know. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, I know. Also, it's a good reminder to remember that food is not that much different from the food uh, over the border in Lebanon or in Palestine. Yeah, well, the two cultures feed off each other and uh, conflict with each other. Israel talks about it, its national dish, hummus, right. and that just creates great anger in Lebanon. That's our dish. Right. In Turkey, they say, no, that's ours. You know, <laughs> Everyone claims the same thing. But actually, they're all cousins, and the food is very similar. My favorite meal, I think, as I was walking down the coast, I do love hummus, was in a place called um, Said in Akko. I love Akko. I would recommend Akko well, That's the Crusader bit, city, isn't it? The Crusader city just south of the Lebanese border, yes. yeah, north of Haifa. It's kind of underrated. People, don't, It's a bit off the beaten track. But actually, it's a fascinating old Crusader town you know, with an old city full of little corners and alleys and cobblestones and great little hummus joints. Don't miss Akko. And that's uh, spelled A-C-R-E or A-K-K-O. Isn't there two different ways? Yeah, exactly. Both of those. And I've never really worked out which is correct, but Akko. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and our guest is journalist Martin Fletcher. In retirement, Martin's been writing novels based on his observations and experiences as a foreign correspondent in many of the world's conflict zones. He's written The Promised Land as the first in a series set in the early years of modern Israel. Martin also won a National Jewish Book Award for his nonfiction title, Walking Israel. In it, he describes what he encountered walking from Tel Aviv to the border with Gaza. His website is martinfletcher.net. When you're thinking of Israel, I always think it's important to get both narratives, and if somebody is curious about getting a balanced look at Israel to go into the West Bank, and we were talking about safety, it seems dangerous to go into a country that is relatively poor. And I think the economic difference from, uh, like, Jerusalem to Bethlehem, one being in Israel and the other being in the West Bank, would be about tenfold in per capita incomes. So if you're surrounded by relative poverty, it might feel a little less safe. Uh, it certainly just feels dirtier and more ramshackle and broken concrete and rusty rebar and so on. But what's your take on the value of balancing the experience by going into the West Bank as well as Israel? Balancing the experience is critical if you want more than just a sort of a little, a slight holiday, you know. Mm -hmm. If you want to understand that you must visit the West Bank, you can't really visit Gaza. On the other hand, I'd say that you do need to be careful. You know where you're going, what roads you're using, and what the political atmosphere is at the time you're there because that when there's conflict between the Jewish settlers living in the West Bank and the Palestinians in the West Bank and then you suddenly drive your tourist car in the middle of that you know you want to be careful so you need mm -hmm. I would say go to the West Bank but with a guide yeah I think that's a very good idea and there's I think there's 40 licensed guides in the West Bank they all speak English it's the best uh, investment you could make is to have a, a local guide with a local car even and they can meet you just on the other side of the wall, and then you could put together your own private tour. But I found walking across the wall between Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem was about as complicated as walking across the border between San Diego and Tijuana. It's just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a whole different world, and you can just walk right across. As a tourist, you can certainly go to the West Bank if you want to, and um, I think uh, Martin's idea about getting a local guide is, is really important. 
What is your take on the delicacy of the name of the West Bank? Different people call it different things for their political reasons. Yeah, well, you know, the West Bank is, is how you and I would call it. A religious Jew would call it Judea and Samaria, and the Palestinians have their term, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a political statement, as a matter of fact. For many Jews, it's a political statement if you use the phrase West Bank or Judea and Samaria. And in my reporting, I would never say Judea and Samaria. I mean, it is known officially as illegally as occupied territory. Would you ever call it Palestine? Uh, no, I wouldn't, to be honest with you, because it's a loaded statement. It's a loaded phrase. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was always, in my reporting, trying to stay as uh, objective and in the middle right. as I could. If I, if, if I had used the word Palestine, it would have been a loaded phrase, yeah. It's the Occupied West Bank is what it is. Occupied West Bank. I was so or struck when I was uh, traveling in the West Bank or Palestine or Judea and Samaria, regardless of what you want to call it, how I've never been in a country where people were so excited to say, Welcome to Palestine, or welcome to the name of their country. <laughs> and I just, I was really struck by that. Welcome to Palestine. Uh, it is a complicated issue. We, you have to concern yourself with that when you're writing. I know I wrote an editorial once about the uh, Holy Land, and I had the word Palestine in it, and the Los Angeles Times was unable to use the editorial because I used the word Palestine. They had to come up with a different word. You know, the thing is, it is so politically loaded. And don't forget one thing. 48, go back a bit, 1948, 47, 46, you know who the Palestinians were, the people who used the term, I am a Palestinian. Mm-hmm. It was the Jews in Palestine. Is that they, right? They, they, described them, yeah, they described themselves as Palestinians. If you look at their propaganda films or read the contemporary newspapers, the Jews were the people who called themselves Palestinians because they were living in Palestine. So you can say, I'm a Palestinian, but it's a where are you in history. It's a complicated thing. CNN's Anderson Cooper calls him the gold standard of war correspondence. Foreign correspondent Martin Fletcher has covered war, international politics, and conflict for decades from his post in Tel Aviv. He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His latest novel is Promised Land, and it's set in the newly established modern state of Israel. His website is martinfletcher.net. Martin, if you could straighten out one misperception that Americans have about Israel and the Middle East, what would that be? (laughs) Wow. Um... If I was to speak politically, I would say it would be the definition of refugees. What is a refugee? What is a Palestinian refugee? Mm-hmm. Because I think that gets in the way so much of the peace process. Hmm. Um, and there's so little sympathy from each side on the Israelis and the Palestinians to each other in terms of who is a refugee. As far as Americans are concerned, misperceptions about the area, I think it's this American uh, need for a peace process. It's so hard to reach peace. I would rather the emphasis would be on managing relations between individuals. Because hmm. I've always felt very strongly that if there was a peace agreement on the table, two-thirds of Jews and two-thirds of Arabs would accept that agreement almost regardless of what it is. Mm-hmm. They've had it up to here with the conflict. Hmm. But it's the leadership on both sides that, that are so entrenched. And so for Americans looking at the region, I would say support the people, not the governments. That's very thoughtful insight. Now, when you say... The definition of a refugee is misunderstood. Talk a little more about that. How is it misunderstood? Well, that's something that President Trump and his administration are trying to deal with. And I've got to say that in this case, I I tend to agree with them. The United Nations Relief Workers Association, UNRWA, was formed to look after Palestinian refugees because the definition of a refugee changed to accommodate the Palestinians. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees looks after refugees all around the world except for the Palestinians. Mm. And by the UNHCR definition, Palestinians are not refugees. Many of them are not refugees. There are 5 million refugees registered with UNRWA, the Palestinian organization, 5 million. Right. That's because the refugees from 48, 
plus their children and their children's children are all called refugees. Well, as a refugee under every other UN organization, the descendants are not refugees. I mean, I, as my parents were refugees from Austria, under the Palestinian definition, I would be a refugee too, but I'm not. So I think that definition of a refugee needs to be reevaluated in order to help smooth the way forwards for a peace process. It's such a complicated process. How do you think people in Israel feel about President Trump in the White House? Not the politicians in Israel. I'm just talking about the, the people you'll see in Haifa that are just wishing they could do their work, you know. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it really depends where you are on the political spectrum. I mean, mm-hmm. the leftists all look at Trump in the same way as probably the, certainly the rest of Europe looks at him mm-hmm. uh, as a dangerous leader. The right-wingers think he's the best thing since sliced bread. He's doing exactly what he wants. I mean, many of Trump's policies, America's policies, are according to the Israeli government playbook. They couldn't have asked for more from an American leader at the moment. And um, whether that's good for Israel or good for the Palestinians is debatable. But I think that the, mm-hmm. you know, Israel is probably the population as deeply split as the American population. But the government of Israel totally backs President Trump. Yeah, I would think that it is, well, it's pretty obviously fitting the agenda of the government. I'm just so curious about soft power versus hard power. I mean, defunding a, a hospital, in a critical hospital in East Jerusalem that serves Palestinians, the Augusta Victoria Hospital, you could have a case that uh, Palestine is not doing what it's supposed to do. But it feels to me that you can create more desperation and more anger when you defund a hospital to try to get a country to play ball the way you want to play ball. Yeah, it's a form of pressure that the American government, President Trump, thinks will force the Palestinians to come back to the negotiating table. The Augusta Hospital is one example. The funding for UNRWA, America's reducing, cutting out almost all of the funding for UNRWA. That's $360 million that America gives right. to the Palestinians. And the first people that will suffer, obviously, are those social programs uh, that need the money, education and the health system. So you know, why is President Trump doing that? To force Palestinians back to the negotiating table. Will it work? The Palestinians say definitely not. But the happiest customer in all of this is the Israeli government. This is exactly what they called for for a long time. Now, considering the recent news, it seems like the two-state solution, it's sort of no longer an option the way things are going. Would you agree that if it's one state, it has to be either a Jewish state with a big and growing Muslim underclass or a pluralistic democracy shared by both Jews and Muslims? Well, given (laughs) given the way the power structure is now, if it is one state, it would not be a democracy because Israel will never give equal voting rights to the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. There's about 2 million Palestinians in the West Bank and about another 2 million in Gaza, maybe 3 million by now in the West Bank. So that's not going to happen. So a one-state solution and democracy do not go together, absolutely impossible. Uh, But there's other possibilities on the table uh, that's being talked about more and more, and they always do talk about this possibility when there's a real impasse, and that's the federation some kind of federation between the West Bank, Gaza, and Jordan, hmm. um, which would remove that sort of desperate choice between two-state and, yeah. and a one-state solution, some kind of yeah. federation. But Jordan would never agree to that. So actually, it's, a, it's a, hmm. as much a stalemate as it was before. Because I just, you know, when you care about Israel, you don't want Israel to be forced into being something it doesn't want to be in order for it to maintain its Jewishness. Well, that's an issue that is more and more current in Israel. I know people who are leaving Israel because they don't want to be part of a Judeo state, if you like, a right-wing orthodox state. And that's the way the government is taking the country at the moment. And I'm not saying, by the way, as I'm putting them as a journalist, you know, mm-hmm. trying to be balanced. 
I'm not saying one is worse than the other. I mean, I don't know what, what the best thing is, but I believe that the best thing is when people have equal rights. So the question is, how do you have Palestinian citizens in your state without giving them equal rights? This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Martin Fletcher. And Martin Fletcher is well-known for decades, served as the NBC bureau chief in Tel Aviv. And his new novel is Promised Land, a novel of Israel. Given what's happening today and, and your intimate connection over these decades with the Holy Land, how would you wrap it up? I just think it's more important than ever, Rick, to get it right, to understand what's happening in the region. And the th problem is that with our form of internet journalism, we're not necessarily getting it right. We're trying too hard to be first, and what accounts more and more is accuracy and understanding the region as well as we can. The stakes are high, and the problem's yeah. complicated, and uh, I think we have to stay at it. And you've done a lot in that regard. Thanks a lot, Martin, and best wishes with your writing. Thanks, Rick. You can hear more with Martin Fletcher in a web extra to today's show. And you can also listen to his earlier appearances on Travel with Rick Steves from our archives. It's on our website, ricksteves.com slash radio. On my recent trip to Jerusalem, I was struck by both the complexity and the immediacy of history in the Holy Land. Memories of tragedies are vivid, and they go way back. People dress in black, still mourning the destruction of the Great Temple about 1900 years ago. And at the powerful Yad Vashem Museum and Memorial to the Holocaust, I stepped into the darkness of the Children's Memorial. With mirrors making a single candle into a sad galaxy of mourning and a solemn voice reading name after name of the victims, I imagined a million and a half children killed by Hitler. Then, stepping outside into the bright daylight, the sounds of a mighty helicopter reminded me history is real and we're all part of it. Six million died, one quarter of them, a million and a half were children. And this is an exhibit here where we hear the names of children, their age, where they're from. And we hear the names in English, Hebrew, and Yiddish, surrounded by one flame. One flame for each person who died in the Holocaust. three years old, Poland. Shoshana Stein. And while one and a half million children perished in the Holocaust, many children survived in this city which started with a few tens of thousands, this country, today has eight million. For the first time, there's more Jews in Israel than died in the Holocaust. There's more Jews in Israel than live in the United States. And they are busy putting together one pretty impressive country. I'm Rick Steves. We're learning about Israel. A very strong nation, which has come a long way since 1945. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazimura Hall. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. There's more at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.